All right. Who's ready for the Word of God? How many know that we're in a significant time in the life of our church? How many know that we're in a significant time in the life of the world? Um, There's no doubt that we see darkness and we see greed and we see violence, but it's also a picture of what we see that the Lord is doing as well. It's sort of like the enemy's playing his last card and here the people of God have come and, and we're about to step in our finest hour if we're prepared. It excites me because we see pictures throughout Scripture of this all the time. We see a, a, a picture in Scripture when Jesus was actually led into the wilderness to be tempted. The fact that Satan harassed him for 40 days because he was about to step into a brand new way in the miraculous. And we see that across the world right now that the enemy is harassing people, Christians, society, humanity. And we're about to step in to the miraculous, to revival, to an outpouring of God that we've never seen before. What that means is that this church is significant. What that means is it's like a city that's set on a hill. It means that the Lord has called us into a place of influence, of significance. That means that you as part of this family, that means that you as individual are called called to influence. You're called to significance. The very way that God God has has made you, the very um, abilities and the gifts that he's given you means that that it is important that you function in that to see what God is about to do. However, in Matthew and actually in a lot of places in Scripture, it talks about the fact that even though we're we're believing God for significance in the kingdom, Jesus actually turns around and he says, hey, you want significance in the kingdom? He says, hey, and he grabs a little child He brings them here and he says, hey, you can't even enter the kingdom unless you become like this, let alone attain to significance. If you got your Bibles, if you can turn to Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. And we're going to read from verse 24 into verse 5 of Matthew 18. When I was at Bible college, my lecturer said, this is one thing I did remember, he said, when you're reading the Bible, you've got to read through the chapters. As in, don't stop at the end of a chapter. Keep reading, because how many know that the chapter references are here so that we can find the places? But here in this passage in Matthew 17, running into 18, it's all one dialogue. It's all one communication that Jesus had. So we're going to read it right through. If you can follow along in your Bibles, we'll start at verse 24 of Matthew 17. It says, After Jesus and his disciples arrived to Capernaum, the collectors of the two 
drachma temple tax came to Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. How many know that there are a lot of passages in the Bible that are just weird? We don't have to look too far, especially in the Old Testament, to find that there's some pretty out there, absurd, abstract stories about what Jesus and what God does. And here I, I put one of these in this category. Is this, is a, this is a weird abstract story. Here we have the disciples, they're walking along and there's this tax collector. Now, now temple tax wasn't a brand new thing then. This was an Old Testament principle. This was initiated because it was for upkeep for the temple. Essentially, it was to keep the lights on, that people would pay a small amount of tax to cover the maintenance and ongoing costs of the temple. And here, one of these people that collects this money comes up to Peter, to the disciples, and says, hey, does your teacher pay the tax? And Peter, without question, says, yes, of course he does, and never thought about it any further and walked into the house. Jesus initiates this conversation and says, hey, Peter, the kings of this world, who do they tax, their children or their subjects? And he says, well, they're subjects. And then Jesus turns around and says, hey, so that we don't cause offense, Go take your fishing line, go throw it in the lake. The first fish you catch, open its mouth. There's going to be the exact amount to pay the tax for you and me. And then straight away, this happens and the disciples come and say, Lord, Lord, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who has the greatest significance? And Jesus says, hey, The original language here, when he says he brought a child, it literally means he brought a a three, four, five-year-old child. It wasn't a teenager. Sorry for all those who got teenagers, I'm sure you you would agree. I've been there. He brings a child, a four-year-old child, and he brings the child in the middle of them, and he says, hey, you want greatness in the kingdom? I say this even further, that you can't even enter the kingdom unless you become like this. How many know that Jesus wasn't talking about being childish? 
He wasn't talking about showing attributes that we, that, that, that we often see in a, a three, four, and five-year-old. He wasn't saying, hey, study the life of a four-year-old and just do exactly what they do and you'll enter the kingdom. But there was some real, this was practical instruction. There was some real things that Jesus was saying, hey, listen closely and have a look at this child because I want to teach you a lesson. When I was reading through this passage, I was struck again the fact that in chapter 18, verse 1, it actually says that the disciples come to Jesus and said, who is the greatest? It says right at that time, there was something that happened in the previous verses, in the previous story, whereby they said, who is the greatest? And I was thinking, was it because this miracle of the coin appeared in the fish's mouth? Well, the disciples had seen miracles. I don't think it was. I think that in this passage here, Jesus actually reveals his identity as the Son of God. Because what he says here is he says, hey, the kings of this world, what do they take taxes from? Their own children or their subjects? And then he paints the analogy. He says, hey, what is the temple? The temple is God's house on the earth. And all of a sudden, they get a clear picture and they think, oh, wow, that's right. We've just got the revelation that Jesus is saying he's the son of God. How many know that this person that came to collect the taxes, he said, hey, Peter, what does your teacher do? What does your leader do? What does your person that you follow do? And in this moment, Jesus says, hey, He gives them a clear revelation and says, I'm the son of God. At this moment, this is when the disciples said, who's going to be the greatest? Because in that moment, they realized once again that he wasn't just an amazing teacher. He wasn't just an amazing leader. He was actually the son of God. You see, when we realize who God really is, And then in turn, who we are from that, our natural response is for greatness. Our natural response, once we see and and understand a revelation of the identity of God as our Father and who we are in that, our natural response is to pursue a life of significance and value and purpose. The crazy thing I find fascinating in this passage is that that Jesus doesn't turn around and say, hey, you shouldn't be talking about greatness. He never turns and says, get behind me, Satan. He doesn't doesn't punish them. He, He doesn't correct them about that comment. What he does is he said, hey, if you want true greatness, let me teach you a lesson from a child. And he pulls the child in and he says, hey, Unless you become like this, you can't even start your life of significance. How many know that in our Western culture, we often prioritize theoretical instruction over practical lessons? Let me say that again. We often prioritize theoretical um, instruction over practical application. That's why you can get a business course and be taught from someone who's never owned a business. 
In Jesus' culture, it was very different. And Jesus often emphasized practical lessons and then also some theoretical instruction. We see here in this passage that in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus does it. See, see we often in our Western culture, we give, a, we give a theoretical instruction and then we'll do the practical application. But here Jesus does it the other way. He comes and he says, Peter, I'm going to teach you a practical lesson. And you may not fully get it until Matthew chapter 18, where I'm going to give you the theoretical instruction. Can you imagine this story? I find it quite weird, this story about this coin in the fish's mouth. Obviously, Jesus has got to the point where he says, okay, we're going to pay some tax. And he says to Peter, hey, go take your fishing line, go to the lake, catch a fish. The first fish you catch, there's going to be the exact amount for the tax. But how many know that Jesus could have just made the coin appear in his pocket? And gave it to Peter. He could have made the coin appear in Peter's pocket. He could have made Peter just walk out and see the coins sitting on the ground. Why would Jesus go to such an extent to make the coin appear in a fish's mouth when it was purely, if it was purely about paying a tax? I would like to propose this morning that paying the tax was important, but it wasn't the main lesson in this story. If you're here this morning and you're getting and you're feeling like you need to pay the ATO, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> Go this week to your accountant and sort it out. Do the right thing and pay the ATO. What's but 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 the big lesson in this story is not about paying a tax. It's actually about trust. It's actually about dependency. It's actually about coming into this childlike place where we actually receive and we enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells Peter, hey, gives him these clear instructions about how he's going to get the coin. And you imagine if, well, if I was Peter, once again, we don't have emojis in the word of God to help us. I wish we did. But here Peter is walking. He's got his fishing reel on one hand and he's walking to the lake. And this is what I would have been thinking if I was Peter. I would have been thinking, Jesus is really good at multiplying food. He's amazing at healing the sick. He's amazing at casting out demons. But does he not realize that I'm the specialist when it comes to fishing? And as Peter walks along, if I was Peter, I would be thinking, hey, he's a carpenter. Jesus has spent all his life before his ministry being a carpenter, working with wood, working with his hands. And if I was Peter, I'd be thinking, hey, this is one area. This was the one time in the ministry where he could have left it up to me. 
But Jesus doesn't do that. He tells him strict instructions about how he's going to get the money to pay this tax. Scholars tell us that Peter just didn't used to go fishing on the weekend like I go fishing every now and again for fun. I enjoy getting on the water. I enjoy having a go. But we have to remember that up until the point where Peter met Jesus, he was a trained fisherman. It was his occupation. His earliest memory was a memory probably being on the water with his father or his grandfather. This was probably a... an occupation that went through his whole family. His father was most probably a fisherman. His grandfather was probably most likely a fisherman. All that Peter has up to this point when he meets, meets Jesus is he's an expert in catching fish. His life is catching fish. And here Jesus says, hey, take a fishing line and catch a fish. If I was Peter walking along with my fishing line, this is what I'd be thinking. Jesus doesn't realize that the most efficient way to catch fish is actually not a line, it's actually a net. We see here that the disciples actually use nets a lot because of the amount of fish that they could catch. We also know that fishing lines were like the beginner's Apologies for anyone who's really into fishing and fishing lines. But fishing lines back then was like the beginning, like the basic way to fish. And once you moved on from that, then you could handle a net. You could handle a cast net. You could handle some sort of other net to catch fish. This was for experienced people. This was for people that, 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 that were experts in their craft. And here Jesus has told Peter to basically go back to the simplicity of catching a fish with a a line. You just imagine Peter walking along thinking, hey, Jesus doesn't realize this. Jesus doesn't realize that I'm actually a skilled fisherman. You can imagine the stories that Peter would have shared with him and his family growing up about the fish that they caught. And I'm sure as Peter's walking along to that lake, he's thinking, there's one story I've never heard. I've never seen out of the, out of the thousands, out of the tens of thousands of fish I've caught, I've never seen, I've never caught a fish with a coin in its mouth. You see, there was every reason for Peter to deny what, the, what Jesus had actually told him to do. It's interesting because on this walk that Peter had to the lake, he actually had to make a decision. He actually had to put all his knowledge, all his experience, all his expert views, push them aside and actually embrace the thing that Jesus had asked him to do. We have an amazing history in this church of 40 years of depth in the, in the Lord, of foundations that are deep. But anywhere where there's such deep foundations, there's also the risk that we run that we become experts. 
and that we become familiar with what God has done in the past. How many know that Peter had to make a decision in this moment to say, hey, what Jesus has asked me is going against all my logical reasoning as an expert fisherman. The big story here was that Jesus was actually teaching Peter a valuable lesson about how he enters the kingdom of coming low, being childlike, humility and trust. The big lesson in this story was not about paying tax. Verse 3 in chapter 18, this is what it says. It said, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what the Passion Translation says. It says, learn this well. Unless you dramatically change your way of thinking and become teachable and learn about heaven's kingdom realm with the wide-eyed wonder of a child, you will never be able to enter it. Let me read that again. Unless you dramatically change your way of thinking and become teachable and learn about heaven's kingdom realm with the wide-eyed wonder of a child, you will never be able to enter in. Peter pushes aside all his expert knowledge. He comes to that moment of trust. And, and I'm sure his thinking process as he walked along to the lake was he was probably wrestling with what Jesus had told him to do. In this case, Peter gets it right. He pushes everything aside and he trusts Jesus. And this miracle happens. It, it happens exactly how Jesus said such an unorthodox, such an abstract way of providing money for tax. But how many know that this isn't the first way that God does things like this? What about when, in the Old Testament, when, when, when God said to Moses, hey, raise your hands and, and while your hands are raised, you will defeat the enemy. What an abstract thing but it was just pure obedience to God. That even Moses had to get someone to hold his hands up. And just this pure obedience just saw an incredible victory that day. Or what about when God says, hey, you're about to go out and attack an army, but put all the worship leaders out first without any other weapons. How many know that this isn't a great military strategy? Unless you don't like your worship team. <laughs> so they put all the worship team out first with no weapons and they see an amazing victory. Or what about when the prophet was surrounded by enemies and, and the Lord blinds them and then the king says to the Lord, hey, shall we kill them all now? And he says, no, don't kill them, feed them. So they feed them and then the enemy decides, oh, we're not going to attack anymore and they leave. I mean, this is incredible. This is, when I, read, when I read these passages, I'm overwhelmed by the fact that, hey, God doesn't do things like I would. 
Who's ever came to this realization? I, I shared this last week, but on one hand of the tension, we have the fact that, hey, we have the mind of Christ. We are created in his image. And on the other hand, we have that, wow, his thoughts and his ways are so much higher than ours. Quite a few months ago, somebody gave us a present and it was a gift for the kids and it sat on our table for a couple of weeks in the box and it was one of these water slides that they're in a box about that big, I think they're in Target and you pretty much roll them out on your backyard you plug in a hose and you put a bit of soap on it and kids love it. They run along and they slide and slip and it's like a little backyard water slide. The problem I have with these things is the picture on front, on the front is quite deceiving. Now, I've had experience with this water slide before, so I was an expert, or so I thought. And the reason it sat there for so long, for about three or four weeks without being open, was because I was not happy with it. Because I'd had an experience before that I was not happy. Now, how many know that, that if you've bought one of these things or had a look in a catalogue, these things are amazing. The picture on the front is incredible. The picture on the front looks like a water slide from Wet n Wild. It literally does. It looks like this 100 metre long slide that just goes on forever. And, and in the picture, there's like this, this, this amazing waterfall fountain that comes out and it mixes with the soap and there's just bubbles and froth and the kids just slide through in this epic way. How many know when you get the thing out of the box, it's literally a piece of plastic from here to the speaker and when you plug the hose in, it dribbles out about that high. So I had had disappointments in the past. And so the kids, every few days, they would go past and they grab this and they say, Dad, is today the day? I said, no, today's not the day. The other problem is when you get the thing out of the box, the little plastic pegs, they break, they don't work, you've got to untangle the hose. There's a fair bit of effort you've got to go to as a parent to set these things up. And usually they're a one-use thing. You, know, you can't reuse this stuff. It's just use it, put it in the bin. So the kids are going past every few days. They're looking at this picture. They're getting excited. And one day, it was the day. It was a hot day. The kids came and they said, hey, Dad, can we do the water slide? I said, oh. And before I knew it, they had run off to their rooms. They were back in their swimmers. <laughs> They're sitting there looking. Dad, today's the day. I said, okay, I built up the courage and I thought, and I was thinking, it's going to be so sad because they're going to be so disappointed when we get this thing out of the box. They've been looking at this picture for four weeks. It's going to be so disappointing when they get there and they see that it's literally a piece of plastic five meters long with a little bit of water dribbling on it. So... I, got, I took them out, I got, this, I, got, I got the thing rolled out. Now, how many know that, that kids get pretty excited? And my kids, I've got a, a six-month-old, but he wasn't interested, of course. Um, 
but a, a five and a seven-year-old. And when they came to me and they said, Dad, is today the day? They're already jumping up and down like this. They, they, they can't even stand still, you know? And when they came back and they're swimmers, I'm thinking, well, settle down, guys. Like, it's just a water slide. And they can't even stand still. They're that excited about this thing. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a bad dad moment. It's going to be disappointing. It's going to end in tears because I know what's in the box. I'm an expert. So we get this thing outside. And I plug the hose in. I said, all right, someone's got to run and turn the water on. Boom, they both sprint off. They turn the water, then they have a race back. Dad, the water's on. It's like, okay. And all of a sudden, as we know, they're ready for a water fountain. And there's a little dribble comes out the top. I look at them. They said, this is amazing. <laughs> Tommy said, Dad, go get the soap. <laughs> and he's standing up. He gets back about 50 meters, like huge run up. I'm thinking, 50 meters? He's at there jumping up and down. He said, Can I go, Dad? And he's ready. And he comes running down, hits that thing. He slides. For five meters, he gets up, he comes up to me and says, did you see that, Dad? I said, I saw it. And at that moment, I turned around to go inside. And the Lord spoke to me very clear and said, you need to see more than that. So I walked inside. I grabbed a camping chair. I walked outside. I put it under the tree and I sat there for two hours. And what I did for two hours was I purely observed. Nothing else. I purely observed. And this is, I, I didn't participate. I purely observed. And for two hours, my kids were excited. They were overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed in a sense of wonder. They were experimenting. They were sliding down on their, on, on their backs. They switched over to their stomachs. They were rolling down. They were covering each other in grass. They were covering each other in soap. And every time they would run back and say, Dad, did you see that? <laughs> and for two hours, this thing only increased to the point I said, I'm losing control here. How many know that the Lord wants to rediscover this childlike wonder? Last week we saw two backs healed. Incredible. And sometimes we can sit there and say, well, it's just a back. For the person that's got the sore back, it's like resurrection life. But I feel like the Lord wants to encourage us to, wow, yeah, it is just a back. But how about we celebrate it? Because what it is, is that something that was impossible to us was possible with God. When's the last time that you've just stopped and been overwhelmed with this wide-eyed wonder at the mercy and the grace and the love of God? A few nights ago, I was in the bathtub, and um, it is something I occasionally like to do. And the one thing about getting in the bath is you've got to be organized. 
Because it's not like, you know, if you forget something, it's not like you can just jump out and run around the house and then jump back in. So you've got to be organized. And so I had my phone. I was listening to some worship music. I was relaxing in the bathtub, just enjoying the presence of God, turning my affection to Him. And after 15 minutes of being in the hot water, I started to feel thirsty because it was hot. And so I, I, I ignored the thought. I'm thirsty, I'm getting a little bit dehydrated and I, I, I ignored the thought and I started thinking, oh, I should have remembered to bring a bottle of water. I'm sitting in a bathtub. And for five minutes I sat there and I'm engaging with God but this thought in the back of my mind keeps going every time my body is feeling thirsty. And I'm pushing it aside thinking, oh, I should, have, I should have remembered to bring a bottle of water. And then I was like, you idiot. And how many know that the spout of the bathtub was one foot in front of my head? Now, I didn't drink the bath water, just, just to let you know. I turned the tap on and I had a drink. But how many know this is sometimes how we're living? Because we're not embracing this wonder of this childlike attitude this childlike approach to God. This week and this next season, everything that God does, I want you to celebrate it like it's the first time you've ever seen it. If you're believing for this mountain to move and you see this clump of dirt moved, celebrate that like the mountain's just been moved. The crazy thing is sometimes we get, we say, well, you're just overhyping it. How many know that my kids were not overhyping anything? The fact their experience on the water slide was real. You see, it's a difference of approach. It's a different difference of attitude. It's actually coming back to that simple place where we say, God, we trust you. And we celebrate everything you're doing. Recently, I heard a study that was done on 1,600 kids, 1,600 children. They found that at the age of five-year-olds, 98% of them were creative geniuses. Out of the 1,600 kids that were sampled in this research project, at the age of five, 98% of them were creative geniuses. When they tested adults, 2% of them were creative geniuses. What it tells me is that A lack of creativity is a learned behavior. And so the Lord is calling us back to just like he did to his disciples saying, hey, you want significance? You want those prophetic words fulfilled over your life? We want the prophetic, um, the promises and that fulfilled over the life of Hope Point Church? Hey, that's amazing. But how we actually even start to begin is this childlike place of wonder, of just over or at the things that God is doing. I think we're going to finish early today. Maybe, maybe a few minutes early. That's good. I just want you to close your eyes just as we finish up.
there's one place where Jesus invites us into experiences his kingdom. And there's this one element reserved for those who will come in this childlike attitude. It doesn't mean we're childish. It doesn't mean we're immature. It doesn't mean that we mimic everything that a five-year-old does. But what it means is we, we adopt these attributes that Jesus is talking about. After I had my two-hour stint sitting under the tree watching my kids, I had my Bible open to Matthew chapter 18, and this is what I wrote. This is what I journaled. A childlike attitude considers relationship more important than information. It never adopts a position of arrival, but constantly remains in a need of dependency. Childlikeness embraces creative solutions, even if contrary to traditional methods. It seeks an approach to life in a simple and uncomplicated way. Childlikeness doesn't focus on what hasn't happened and in turn harbour disappointment, but rather celebrates with an undivided and full heart. Childlikeness is built on trust and doesn't have to be persuaded time and time again of the truth. It simply believes. Childlikeness is often expressed by early risers Excited to explore another day. They stop and observe things that others never see. Fueled by their sense of wonder. Could it be possible that a greater reality of the kingdom of God is reserved for such a childlike approach? I believe it is. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our church. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And Lord, we know deep down inside that you have called us to significance. Lord, we can't deny the fact that the promises that you've spoken over our church are to be a city that's set on a hill, to one that brings change and transformation to a, to a, to a city that is in great need of you. And Lord, as we, as we contemplate the the gravity of these promises, Lord, we know that at that same time you say, hey, you can only even begin as you take a childlike approach. So this morning we, we put aside everything we know and we just come before you in this moment. We come before you and we, we say, Lord, would you use us? We want to just spend time with you. We want to be used by you. Lord, that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before we finish up this morning, if you're here and you've never, ever made a decision for Jesus, maybe you've never even contemplated a relationship with a loving father. Maybe you didn't even know it was possible. If that's you this morning and you want to say, hey, I want to come into that place of relationship with God. If that's you, would you just raise your hand for a moment just so I can see. I just want to include you in a prayer. If there's anyone here, this is the most important thing we can do is say yes to Jesus. If there's anyone here this morning that says, hey, I want to be right with God. 
I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want a brand new start. Maybe you've prayed this before. Maybe you've made a decision before. And today you want to just say, hey, I want to say this again. I want to be sure. If there's anyone here, just quickly throw up your hand so I can see you. Anyone? All good. All good. Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, Once again, make sure you honor your mothers today. Um, Hang around. We're going to have a a special Mother's Day morning tea. And um, just want to let you know, next week's going to be an important time. Next week, we have a Q&A panel. We have over about 140 years of wisdom that's going to be up on this stage talking at the same time. Absolutely. This is going to be incredible. So make sure you come next week. Have an amazing day. Um, Let's keep believing God. Let's keep sharing the testimonies of what God's doing. Amen. Thank you, guys.